Thanks for being with us on this Sunday morning. So on Thursday, I was working on a story that led me to ask the question, when does the holiday season actually begin? And there was a bit of a difference of opinion on that. But the reason I was asking is because, as you likely know, we have been promised again and again that we will have ride sharing in BC for this holiday season, whether you think it starts on November 1st, November 15th, December 1st, what have you, we were told we would have it in time for the holidays. Well, on Thursday, Lyft came out saying there have been a few more obstacles than anticipated. Take a listen. This is Peter Lukomsky, who's the general manager for Lyft in British Columbia. We are hoping to get our license from the Passenger Transportation Board, which is our provincial license, in the next two to three weeks here. Uh, The PTB has been great to work with. They've updated us along the way as to um, when the license is coming. Um, So we do anticipate getting that. Uh, The um, thing we've seen recently is that some of the municipalities have been trying to figure out how to uh, regulate ride sharing as well. Um, A little bit of a surprise for us, to be quite honest. Uh, We had hoped that we would have the provincial license as an overarching license. Um, But now what we're seeing is municipalities trying to take a look at how they can also um, either regulate or or license ride sharing. Um, and, And it's thrown some uncertainty our way. Some uncertainty when it comes to companies like Lyft and Uber coming to BC. So let's bring in Ian Tostenson. He is the president and CEO of Ridesharing Now for BC. Ian, great to talk to you again. Good morning, Jim. How are you? Very well. How about you? I'm pretty good, actually. I uh, I think we might have some breaking news in this file, baby. Oh. But um, I have to say, you know, when I listened to Peter and I was talking to a bit of a side story, a gentleman that has opened has opened up a food delivery company in um, Vancouver, and he told me on well Thursday or Friday uh, this week that he doesn't want to do it anymore. There's so much regulation, there's so much in- interference from government at all levels. He's from New York originally. He doesn't want to do it anymore. And I sort of you know, and listening to the the opening of the story reminds me of the same thing: is you really have to take your hats off to Lyft and Uber that they've endured this pain so much for from governments to get as far as we have. Because having uh, talking with uh, Peter on uh, on Thursday, and I was chatting with Uber just on the phone on Thursday as well. So they're all saying that they assume or they think that they are going to get the green light from the Passenger Transportation Board within the next couple of weeks. But this uh, now with some municipalities, not all, they said some are great. North Van is great. Uh, the Tri Cities they say want ride sharing, uh, but uh, with the others now saying, well, wait a minute, you need you need this business license fee, you need to pay this vehicle fee. You we need to pay this congestion charge. Uh, they're concerned. So what do you say to that? Well, so the background is, uh, so the city of Vancouver, about a month ago, um, they uh, put in a $100 per, it doesn't sound very bad, right? $100 per uh, car uh, licensing fee and then 30, 30 cents to pick up and 30 cents to drop off. And when you listen to them deliberate this, they really don't have any concept of why they're doing it. I think they simply see it as, optics for the taxi industry because I was at the meeting and also a way to raise money because they said well, we have to have staff that you know pay for the staff that have to monitor all this you know the, the, the potential disruption causing from ride sharing in Vancouver and they did it in complete isolation so if every municipality did the same thing it'd be a couple thousand dollars to license that car um, conversely in, in, the, in the GT in the greater Toronto area it's fifteen dollars per car and 30 cents a ride so that's how they figured it out so what we're seeing now is every municipal well, no, some municipalities in 
uh, in greater uh, Vancouver are looking at this in terms of, well, how do we a, slow it down? So certainly uh, Surrey would like to not have ride sharing. The mayor is against it. Delta is a little bit the same way with one of the councillors there. But yesterday, what um, Mayor Stewart from Coquitlam came out and said that there is a great potential that there'll be one fee for all of uh, Greater Vancouver, so all of Metro Vancouver, which would be ideal. And that's very similar, Jill, to um, a concept. I sit in the Small Business Roundtable in BC, and we developed a concept with the provincial government called a mobile business license. And if you're you know, a service provider, say a plumber or electrician or whatever, and you have to cross municipal boundaries to apply your trade, you pay a fee, I think, of something of $150 a year, and it covers your licensing all across um, Metro Vancouver. So, I, you know, Richard Stewart is awesome. He really wants this badly. So I think that's going to be the solution. I think that we'll be able to clear that hurdle and not get bogged down in sort of individual negotiations by each municipality. And that's what uh, I chatted with Sarah Kirby Young, who's a Vancouver City Councillor, on Thursday as well. She voted against it for that exact reason, saying there's no reason for Vancouver to go on it alone and bring in these fees when they should be doing it in with everybody else that's in the region, which is Metro Vancouver, Sea to Sky, and the Fraser Valley. So uh, you're saying it sounds like uh, the, that uh, that is what's going to happen? Yeah, I think so. And You know, if... You know, it comes down to the sincerity of these councillors. Sarah Kirby Young is great. She gets it. She gets the the greater... I mean, this is about transportation in Metro Vancouver. It's not about Vancouver being able to fill its coffers on the basis of ride-sharing. And you know what? Um, The decision in Vancouver, I'm convinced, was still there because the taxi industry is in the room, and they're almost smiling at this because they know that every... Every one of these policies just slows it down a bit more and creates a bit more uncertainty for the ride-sharing companies. But to the general public, it sounds reasonable. So I do believe that Metro Vancouver will do this. I think that the uh, mayor's council, who decides this, will collectively outweigh the sort of selfish, narrow interests of the mayor of Surrey and other municipalities that are looking at this like um, it's going to be a political suicide for them against the taxi industry and just get on with the greater good and what what people of Metro Vancouver want, which is ride-sharing before the holiday season. Uh, what do you say, though? Peter uh, with Lyft said that uh, it's probably not going to be the model that people might be used to if you've used ride-sharing in other cities mm-hmm. in that they're going to have to use geofencing with cities like Surrey. Uh, like we know, the mayor there said he doesn't want it in his city. That leads us back to the taxi model where you could get an Uber or a Lyft in Vancouver if you're going to Surrey, but then that driver needs to deadhead back or deadhead somewhere because they won't be able to pick up there. Yeah, I think what's going to happen is that let's assume that Surrey somehow blocks it uh, and they geofence it. So, in other words, um, cars can't operate there. I think the public will be so outraged in in a short period of time. There was a a survey was done. Uh, Surrey was like seventy eight percent. They need they need ride share. They have big transportation problems there. So, I don't think it's going to last long. I mean, the the mayor can try to do this, but I think the public will push back. So, I think we'll get through. We'll push through those things, Joe. I think that if we have a system where, um, gee, I can I can go to Coquitlam, but I can't go to Surrey, it's just going to be, you know, ridiculous. And the public's, you know, put a lot of pressure on the politicians, and they'll straighten it out. But they um, they're going to fight this every which way they can until the very last moment, and then I think we'll finally get ride sharing. I think Peter's referring a bit to is that in the states, um, the the cost of the fares. I mean, we prescribed a minimum fare. 
for ride sharing in British Columbia that was prescribed by the Passenger Transportation Board. And then we've got all these environmental fees and congestion fees. So he's probably saying, look, it's not going to be quite as inexpensive as maybe you're used to when you when you do it in the States because all these different fees have been added on. But it'll still be, it'll still be affordable, and I still think it'll be ubiquitous eventually across Metro Vancouver. And I still, I still believe it'll happen before the holiday season because I think it's going to be political suicide if it isn't. Yeah, well, we're getting down to the wire. Uh, Interesting when talking about Surrey as well, like you mentioned, uh, when you talk to the residents, residents say they want it. And also the numbers from Lyft showed. So Lyft has been paying for people to get their class four licenses because we thought all along that that was the big hurdle or certainly one of them. Uh, But they were saying from the people that have signed on that that already have class four and want to drive with Lyft, the the most people so far have come from Surrey. It's at 44 percent from Surrey, which to me suggests that it's taxi drivers that have signed on that want to drive with Lyft. Oh, yeah. I, um, I do a lot of my research um, with taxi drivers. And um, for sure, a lot of taxi drivers are going to uh, go to Lyft or Uber because um, the seat is uh, more flexible. I mean, those guys, they, they work like six days a week, 12 hours a day at least. And this way, they're going to have more flexibility. You know, there's evidence to suggest they're going to make 15 to 20 bucks an hour. And uh, and have you know much more sort of you know adaptability and flexibility. So, I think you're right. I think you see a lot of uh, taxi drivers uh, gravitate over. And Lyft is paying the cost or, or providing a credit towards the cost of getting the class four license, which is great, which is uh, good for them. And I, in talking to Peter about a month ago, they were quite happy with the number of drivers that were signing up. Um, so they were we were quite concerned that that class four was going to be more of an obstacle than it is, but it seems to be kind of all right. Uh, and so when we say, uh, you're saying confident that we will see this, so what in your mind kind of, what, what is the start to the holiday season? When do you think, because we're already sitting it to it's October 27th, when do you think we might see it? Well, we've had some back chats about middle of November, the first ride. I mean, there's been some, you know, could we, you know, could we, have it, I don't know this will happen, right? The, the premier uh, taking a ride uh, maybe mid-November. Uh, we've talked about taking the coalition that was so helpful in getting ride-sharing uh, and maybe having a bit of a celebration mid-November. So everybody's sort of talking mid-November uh, to get something going. Um, so the holiday season, if you look at it from a restaurant perspective, it probably starts you know mid-November, end of November with Christmas parties and stuff. So I, we're, we're cutting it close, but... I'm, I, listen, I don't want to be talking to you in December by saying, no, I guess it's going to be next year, Jill. <laughs> no. I promise you. <laughs> it won't, that won't work. I think, I, I do believe it's going to be November. Uh, will it be right across Metro Vancouver? It might be a few, few opt, um, municipalities not in yet, but the public will, will put the pressure on and we'll get it. All right. And just before I let you go, I don't want to put you on the spot, but last time yeah. we talked, you were getting your class four. How's that going? Um, I've been, you know, I've been working on it and my son, who's, um, bidding to become a fireman, he's got several licensed categories. He's got like a class one and a class three. And he sort of thought, oh, whatever, I'll just take this. And, you know, well, as I apply for fire halls, um, I'll become a Lyft driver. He failed it. Oh. <laughs> and, and he's a really good driver and he's, you know, he, he does all this stuff. But he said, it's really weird because he said there was stuff, there was stuff in there about, the maintenance schedule of buses and how to clean the inside of buses. He said it was really weird. It had nothing to do with driving, uh, you know, a, a passenger car. So I guess what I'm going to have to do here is by the time mid-November comes, I'm going to have to have this because 
I want to be able to sort of go through the journey so I can actually with credibility say, this is, I've done it. This is what it looks like. So man, I think I'd like to do some driving just to see what that's like too. All right. Well, we will check in with you again. And uh, you're right. We don't want to have the conversation where we're saying next year, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so fingers I'll crossed. Never, I'll never be in your show again. <laughs> this will be the last conversation ever. <laughs> no, we don't want that. All right, Jill. All, all right, Ian, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Okay, thanks. We've talked in the past about the ongoing tent city that is happening in Oppenheimer Park in Vancouver. And some are asking the question now, will it continue to operate indefinitely? Joining me on the line is Vancouver City Councillor Jean Swanson. Uh, Councillor Swanson, thank you so much for taking some time with us this morning. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, what uh, Walk us through, uh, for people that uh, weren't following along or, or with the, what happened at Council, this uh, was an issue that came to Council just a few days ago. Uh, what has the, the City Council decided as far as the future of Oppenheimer? Well, it's still kind of murky. <laughs> so we passed a resolution uh, that I didn't bring. That was brought by uh, Michael Weeb and Lisa Dominato that uh, council directs staff to deliver to develop a collaborative plan to go to the park board for approval with options that are better for people dealing with homelessness in parks in their current situation, including permanent or temporary housing, shelter, open space options that are accessible, safe, and warm while restoring parks for broad public use. So that was one of about 10 things that got passed. So it's still not actually clear what's going to happen. The park is in uh, the jurisdiction of the Parks Board, and um, they're they're the ones that call the shots on whether or not there's an injunction, which is what would be required to clear it. But the thing is, it's the camping in the park is part of a broader issue of homelessness, right? We have over 2,000 homeless people in the city, there basically is no housing that they can afford. It doesn't exist. And we desperately need more housing um, that low-income people can afford. And so did the, the city as well pass a motion that uh, amenities will be added to the park, uh, things like a kitchen and laundry facilities? Well, there were different... Um, just a second, I've got it here. Um, there were different parts of the motion, and some of them talk for, talk about um, providing different services. There was a lot in the motions about services. Um, the park uh, to see there's people who are homeless in all the parks and in other places. So this motion was broader, and it included... Um, uh, other parks, so that the city and park board explore opportunities to collaborate and expand on the peer-based park stewardship pilot program with the aim to provide access to daily showers and washrooms at field houses in city parks and explore options for needed services such as community kitchen, additional accessible laundry and drying facilities, and 24-hour sanitation facilities with running water. Um so the, these are things that hopefully our staff will be able to work on. Uh, isn't that kind of, I, I guess, two things there. Is it not then suggesting that it's okay for people to be living in parks, parks that are supposed to be spaces for all the public to use? So um, the way I'm thinking about this is that um, we desperately need housing. We have 
it counted last March over 600 people in the city for whom there were no, we didn't even have shelter spaces. So they were on the street. The people who are in the park are saying it's safer there because they have their own, they've set up their own overdose prevention site. They have a 9-11 call box and they have each other to look out for each other. Um, if they were in the alleys or if they were in the storefronts or wherever you have to be, because you have to be someplace, they wouldn't, they don't think that they would be so safe. So, yes, we do need to have parks that everyone can use that aren't occupied by tenters. But right now, the priority is for people to have a place to be where they're a little bit safer than they would be in the alleys. That's that's my thinking on it anyway and it's we don't have enough time right now unless we bought a hotel or a motel which i would like i actually tried to get a motion through to buy a hotel or a motel not necessarily a fancy one but just something where people could live like the city did back in 2014 when they leased the uh, i think it was called the quality inn and put people from Oppenheimer Park in there. If we could lease or buy a hotel or motel now, I think that would be a perfect solution because we don't have enough time to build housing for the winter and people need a solution for the winter. I mean, it's three degrees this morning, which is not very nice camping out in three degrees. Um, No, absolutely. But when you say solution, I guess, is it a short-term solution? Because like you you said, the city a few years ago bought that hotel or leased the hotel. People were able to move in there, but it didn't solve the problem because here we are now with a tent city, another tent city in that park. Yeah. So we have some, you know, I can always say this. I can remember back in the 70s when I worked in the downtown east side, we didn't work on ending homelessness because there was hardly any. And that's because we've had back, you know, in the seven, in the 40 years since then, we've had 40 years of austerity with the government's cutting back on the building of social housing, cutting back on welfare rates, cutting back on services. So in 1972, there were 30,000 units of social housing built in Canada, and that's when low-income people could afford social housing. In 1972, welfare rates were high enough that you could pay the rent and eat. Neither of those are true now. So we need to get back to those kinds of times where welfare rates get raised so that they're adequate to live on and where governments are building lots of social housing. And with the city passing this motion, where does it stand as far as the city was asking for jurisdiction of the park, saying it's the park board's job or the park board needs to deal with this. So why is the city now passing motions dealing with this when just a couple of weeks ago the city was saying we can't do anything because it's the jurisdiction of the park board? Yeah, well, this wasn't my motion. (laughs) I was just sitting there. I had to vote, you know, pick out the parts of it that I thought might humanize things a little bit or not. Um, so the park board, I think this was an attempt to try and get city, uh, or part of this, parts of this will hopefully be able to provide more services to people who are homeless in the interim before we can get some housing for them. And hopefully, um, the city just actually also last week passed 25 million to put into making housing more affordable which is good, not enough, but good. And hopefully we can also get uh, the province to put more modular housing into its budget for next year. 
Last year, the province had 600 units of modular housing in the budget, which was really good. Um, this year, it only had 200 for the whole province. So if we can get them to up that, uh, so we get another 600 or even 2,000, I would go for that would be great, and that would do a lot to solve the problem. Is the solution, do you think, modular housing? If you built enough modular housing to house everybody that's currently in Oppenheimer, would that fix the problem? No, because the people in Oppenheimer, there's there's over 2,000 homeless people in the city. You need house, good housing for everybody. How long do you foresee this happening then, as far as it sounds like the the camp in Oppenheimer isn't going anywhere soon? Uh, that kind of looks like that's true. I, and the idea of these motions is to provide something that's a little more human than having to, that has more services, more warmth, more dignity, more sanitation than what uh, people have if they're sleeping in the alleys and on the streets. But that is not a solution, and the solution is more housing. All right. We will leave it there. Uh, Councillor Swanson, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining us this morning. Okay, you're welcome. Bye-bye. Well, if you have an electric vehicle, you have probably used a charge station somewhere along the way. And if so, there's a chance you may have witnessed an argument between electric vehicle owners. And that is why BC Hydro put out a release about the etiquette at the electric pump. And joining me to talk a little bit more about this is Susie Ryder, who is with BC Hydro. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, no problem. Happy to be here. So what do you see at the electric charging stations? What is leading to people having these conflicts or these arguments? Well, it's just a lack of awareness around the etiquette, uh, the manners. Uh, With any new technology, there's this growing pain period. And that's sort of what we're in right now. And we found that uh, almost a quarter of EV drivers surveyed have argued with a fellow EV driver at a charging station, and one-third have seen an argument take place. And this is things like uh, 30% said they've had another EV driver unplug or try to unplug their vehicle while it's charging, and about a quarter have experienced extreme frustration over uh, someone fully charging their vehicle at a public charger. And um, also owners of ICE vehicles as well, internal combustion engine vehicles, Uh, have experienced some of this conflict. So about uh, 30% think it's unfair that EV charging stations are located at some of the most desirable parking stall locations. So uh, close to a store entrance, those kinds of things. Uh, And because there was a a time when it was a bit of an issue with people using them as parking spots or using them as long-term parking rather than a place to charge, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and that's still happening. They call it uh, they call it icing. So when a gas-powered vehicle will park in an EV parking stall, but also e- some EV drivers are parking in EV parking stalls uh, and then running in and, and doing errands somewhere when they don't actually need to charge. So uh, our biggest tip is if you're not charging, don't park in an EV uh, charging stall. Which seems it seems basic enough, but I guess the temptation, because you're right, they are often the really good spots that uh, have the chargers. Uh, what about the length of time? So is there a, a kind of a code with how long, if you're at a public station, how long you should park there? Yeah, so the BC Hydro DC fast charging stations, they're level three, so they can charge a vehicle to 80% in 30 minutes. And we recommend just 30 minutes at a charging station max. And 
don't unplug anyone. And actually, you can use the Plug Share app to communicate with other drivers. Uh, you could just download it on your iPhone or Android, and you can find out. Uh, you, you can just talk to people, essentially, who may be parked around you, and you can ask them, hey, like, how long are, are you planning on being there? I might need that spot. So just making sure you're communicating with other drivers as well, and that, uh, that app can help. Uh, absolutely, because it almost seems like it's uh, today's version of being at a laundromat and going in and taking someone's machine or moving their clothes out of the machine. And there's kind of that unwritten rule. You don't touch other people's laundry. You kind of wait for them. Uh, the same with it seems pretty bold for somebody to go and unplug somebody's vehicle. It does. And I, I love that analogy, actually. I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but absolutely. And again, electric vehicles, they're, they're relatively new technology. And we're in kind of that period where people are just realizing uh, how, how to go about charging and how to, how to do these things. And, and actually, we found in our survey that most people do charge at home, most owners of electric vehicles. And uh, that's why BC Hydro is offering rebates. So we're offering a $350 rebate on top of the uh, province of BC's $350 rebate for a total of $700 in rebates off a home charger. So you can avoid some of the conflict and, uh, and charge at home. But the public chargers are great, especially for long road trips, things like that. They're great as a supplement. But um, it's, it's things are shifting. Uh, we're used to going to the gas station to gas up and now the gas station's in your home and people have this misconception that they have to go to a public charger constantly when they don't, especially if they have a home charger. Well, and I guess I wonder, is it a cost thing in that if you can get a free charge when you're out and about in public, uh, that would be more attractive, I imagine, than doing it at home? You know, that could be part of it because there are, I mean, all the BC hydro chargers are free and there's 1,700 public chargers across the province and um, some of those are free, some of those charge a a small fee. Um, But actually charging at home is a lot less expensive than people think it's going to be. So for the average BC hydro bill, uh, you're looking at 35 bucks a month in in, uh, extra electricity costs to charge an EV. And then when you compare that to gassing up a Honda Civic, which is about $170 a month on average. When you think of it that way and compare it to a gas-powered vehicle, it's actually a lot more uh, economical than you'd think. Uh, absolutely. Uh, it, it does uh, make sense. And you're right. Uh, people are kind of shifting. Is it still that idea, though, of uh, not being uh, able to access a charge and maybe running out of power that uh, you think is holding people back as far as making that shift to a, an EV? Uh, oh, sorry, do you, mean, do you mean at home running out of power? Or just even in, just in general, if you don't have a charge station at home and you are relying on public chargers, that kind of fear of not being able to charge the vehicle or finding one. Right. Well, it, it, is, it is a shift in thinking, and there are a lot of public chargers. And uh, if you get the plug share app, you can see there's, there's 1,700 across the province, and, and BC Hydro has these 60 DC fast chargers. And we're expanding all the time. Right now, we're working on phase three of our charging network, and that's going to expand the network to 75 stations by the end of the year. And that's including stations from Kamloops to Prince George and on Vancouver Island from Campbell River to Port Hardy. And then we do have uh, plans that we're finalizing for phase four. And that's going to be almost 50 more chargers um, at 16 new sites, so from Prince George to Prince Rupert. And uh, we're also in the process of right now twinning some additional sites. So 
uh, in the Lower Mainland and Squamish and Hope because there are a lot of really busy stations in, in those areas. So, yeah, we are in a transition period and we, we are working to expand, but uh, there are quite a few public chargers. All right. So uh, bottom line, don't uh, get in fights at the charge stations, uh, everybody. <laughs> just just get along when charging your vehicle. Can't we all just get along? <laughs> All right. Well, definitely an interesting survey, interesting findings there. Uh, Susie Ryder, thank you so much for joining us and talking about this today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Is it too early for Christmas music? Well, no, because we are talking about the Circle Craft Fair, which is a Christmas-themed fair. Not all Christmas products, but there's certainly a Christmas feel to it. There are decorations. And for me, it's kind of like the unofficial start of the Christmas season, a must-do every single year. And we've got a couple of tickets to give away. As I mentioned before the break, all you need to do is send me an email, jbennett at cknw.com, and I'll pick one listener before the end of the program. But right now, we are joined by the producer of the Circle Craft Show, Rossanne Clamp, is on the line with us. Good morning to you. Good morning. So excited that it's that time of year again. So for people that haven't been to the Circle Craft market in the past, tell them why it's uh, so special. What makes it special? You know, I know it's an early jump start for Christmas, but once you get into the hall, I promise you forget that you're in November only. <laughs> um, but basically what we are is we have over 300 artisans from across Canada who come out, who fly out and drive out to be there. So it's a really great selection of local made gifts and gifts that are just made in Canada. It, it is certainly a great collection. And like you said, you see these items and these, these, these gifts and products that people have really poured their heart into and have taken such time to put together. How do you choose who gets into the show? Yeah, it's actually a very rigorous process. And we turn away hundreds of applicants each year because what we do is we have a jury and on the jury, each person who sits there is an expert in a particular craft. So we have a master jeweler, we have a woods person, we have a textiles person, and we all, in, in around February, we start in February, everyone sits in a room, and we kind of lock them in there all day, and we go through application after application, and they discuss to make sure it sort of meets our level of, you know, quality, and the most important, obviously, is that, is it made in Canada, because, you know, that's, that's sort of our, you know, we're trying to support locally made things. And then from there, uh, we send out acceptance, and then we keep going until the show is full, and the show is usually full in May. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because most people, I think, uh, the people that celebrate Christmas in February, you're still kind of recovering from the Christmas season. And the last thing you want to do is be thinking about next Christmas and have Christmas on the brain. But you guys are in it full swing. I know, and I personally feel that. I was like, how are we still doing Christmas? You know, like I started this in September, and I'm still talking about Christmas in February. But, um, but yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's how we do it, and it seems to work pretty well. So we've been doing it like that for quite a while. Uh, and you are, this is a, a new role for you. Uh, we've talked on this program with Paul Yard, who was the previous producer of the show. He'd been doing it for several years, uh, but you've been involved. So how is it now being in that role, kind of being in charge this year? You know, I've been working. I'm, I've been working with Paul for around eight years, and this is the this is his first official retirement role. Uh, sorry, year, but he's been uh, he's been stepping back slowly over time, and um, and I'm still calling him, which is which is nice that he's still picking up. Um, but yeah, no, it's been it's actually been really good. It's been pretty seamless, and 
you know, we have so many returning exhibitors, but as well, we have so many returning people that we work with. So you might notice that there is um, a fleet of volunteers there who, who we call our volunteers, but, you know, they are our paid staff and they wear aprons and they have the logo. And some of those volunteers have been doing the show for 20 years. So I might be new, but everyone else isn't new, which is great. <laughs> uh, we talk a little bit about some of the uh, the new exhibitors, then people who made it into the show that haven't been there before. Which ones uh, stick out, or do you would you say are must sees? Um, okay, so we've got an interesting uh, product. It's it's Rag Malga Twenty Nine is the name of the company, and what they're doing is they are putting flowers into jars. Um, and it sounds it sounds a bit crazy, but it's they're beautifully done, beautifully executed. And um, they sent us some samples to the office, and we've had them on the windowsill ever since. And we're just totally enjoying them. And I'm surprised at how lovely they are. So I would definitely check them. I've never seen anything like that. Apparently, it's very common to do this in Japan, but I've never seen anything like that here. So I would definitely check them. I've also got a glass worker coming in who's making the most beautiful array of colors in her glasses, and that's Doherty Glassworks. And they're just, you know, they are such contemporary pieces that are just absolutely lovely, and I'm very excited about her color palette. So you can get a set of four tumblers and four different, you know, like monochrome shades, or you can do little pastels. They're they're really, really great. Um, And on the food section, We've got someone joining us from uh, from the Squamish area. It's Frostbite, and what they do is they're doing um, cordials. So if you want to make a special sort of winter cocktail or you're, you know, you want to experiment, they've got this great selection of homemade uh, shrubs and uh, cordials. Uh, my favorite is the key lime mint. It's so good. I've been throwing it into my fizzy water at work. Um, And so, yeah, I would definitely recommend them too. (laughs) Well, and that's the thing. There's so many different different areas, whether it's crafts or food or or different uh, things. Is that part of the makeup of it too, making sure that there's that that variety of items and, and things that are offered up for people? Yeah, we keep we keep a cap on all of the categories. So, you know, a category like food, which which is immensely popular and we have very we don't have as much movement in that category. It's very hard to get into that one. Jewelry as well. Um, just so we can keep a balanced show and we can support all the kinds of craft that's that's really important. And what would you suggest for people? Because it is so much to see and take in. And one of the great things about the ticket is, um, I'm assuming it's the same this year, and that you can go and you can you can go back several times. So you don't have to make decisions if it's the first time you're there. You can think about it and go back. But how would you suggest people tackle it uh, going there? Because it can be overwhelming to walk in to the convention center to where it is and and see everything right in front of you. Yeah, it's, it's a large space. Uh, and this year we've We've tried to help break it up. By we've got a lot more seating areas to help, you know, because we're so used to running around the floor. But as, as a person who visits it for the first time, you sort of walk in there and you're like, oh, my God, I just left fall. I've entered Christmas and it's huge. Um, but what I would do is basically we, ha- we hand out floor maps at the door. And so you get a program. I would take a pen with you and I would just start and sort of start on the right-hand side, and when you see something you like or you think you might want to go back, I would circle it on your floor map. 
And then you can go back the next day. We have people coming in with these dog-eared programs. They've come in four days in a row. And, of course, you're, like you were saying, your ticket is good for the whole show. Um, and, then, and then you will know sort of what you're interested in and if you want to go back there. Uh, and you'll have a much better idea of where it is on the floor. Um, and if you look up into, into the top of the, each of the booths, there is a, a booth number there. So you should be able to find them quite, quite easily. So that's, I would use your floor map. That's what I would do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they're there for a reason. That's, uh, I know. That's a- <laughs> yeah. yeah. You think you don't need one and then you get into the corner and you're like, where's the bathroom? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, it sounds like it's going to be a great show. So it kicks off uh, this year, November 7th uh, through the 11th. And any tips on the best time to go if people want to try and avoid the crowds or, or have a quieter time or is it just any time is good? Uh, no, we definitely have busy times. I would, um, oh, we open at 10, so avoid the opening. If you're trying to do a quiet thing, I would get there sort of 2 to 5 is quieter. And then after 5 p.m., we do 50% off tickets. Um, and I would avoid 5 right at 5. But if you want to come around 6, 6.30, it gets, it, it'll get a bit quieter then too. So 2 and 6.30, I'd say, is your, is your, your best. Uh, chance at, at a little little bit of a calmer shopping experience. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us and talking about what to expect this year for people who have gone before and for those who haven't. Uh, Rossanne, thanks so much. Have a great show and appreciate uh, your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me.